So, I'm sure that your discussion is really interesting and it could go in a lot of different ways and that's how this works. When we're talking about anthropology, when we're talking about the study of mankind, there are so many different opinions. In fact, every single culture that has ever lived has had some really strong opinions as to what mankind is, what morals should be, what the ideal life is like. Because every single culture that has ever existed is human. Obviously, we're going to have opinions as to what we're supposed to be. And tonight, we are going to ask the question, what is a Christian worldview of humanity? What is a Christian worldview of humanity? In the words of the psalmist, Psalm 8.5 says this, What is mankind? What is mankind that you, God, are mindful of us? And it goes on, and we're going to get into that a little bit more. There's so many different opinions, and essentially, there are going to be three topics that help us understand what mankind is. Three theological topics. I'll explain them as they go, but to help me explain the first one, it is summed up in this paradoxical statement. And the paradoxical statement, as you can see at the top of your page, says this, Man is essentially good, but existentially estranged from God. Mankind is essentially good, but existentially estranged. And that second part is broken, fallen, evil, sinful. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. We're going to talk about the image of God. We're going to talk about the nature of sin. And at the very end, we're going to end with the co- our own composition. What does it mean that we are insouled bodies? That our bodies, we're made up of body and spirit. So that's what we have on the menu for tonight. It is a lot, so buckle up. Um, let's pray and then let's dive in. Father God, thank you for this chance. Um, these are conversations that I know have so much relevance to all of us. Um, God, I just pray that this study, it means something to them. Um, I pray that as we go, that these theological topics, that they shine, Lord, that they pop, that they're not just texts, God, but that they see the relevance and they see your beauty and how it affects their daily lives. Lord, I pray that as they go, they could see the dignity that you have bestowed all of humanity with, but our own fallen nature. Um, God, I just pray for tonight. And I pray that your spirit is with us, and I pray that, above all, you are honored. It is in Jesus Christ's name that I pray. Amen. So our first topic that helps us understand is that mankind is essentially good. And I'm just going to go ahead and erase all of that. Mankind is essentially good, and it is summed up in the word, image of God. That's at the top of your page, image of God. In Latin, that is called imago Dei. In Hebrew, that is called Salim. And that's a fun one, Salim. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, I can't speak Hebrew, so we're just going to keep rolling. So Salim means literally statue, 
image, there you got the image part, or idle. Idle. So for those of you that are familiar with the Old Testament, you know that idolatry is one of the biggest things that God is always talking against. He says, you don't worship idols. Do not worship idols. Do not worship anything that is in the image of another God. Why is that the case? Well, here's the case. Let me read it to you. Genesis 1.26 says this. Genesis 1.26 Then God says, Let us, God, make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures of the ground. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Interesting historical background about the image of God. Only kings were considered the image of God before the Scriptures were written. So the idea is like Egypt, Pharaoh. Like Pharaoh was the image of God. Like he was the divine representative of the heavenly realm. You guys have seen Moon Knight, some of you. Okay, so there's like, yeah, I know J.C. Cash has seen that. Okay, (laughs) Night Moon. So there's the gods above, and then there's one representative of that god on earth. And that, in ancient thought, is the king. But then the Bible comes and says, no, every single human being is the image of God. Everyone is made in His image. So that is why there is no idols. Why does no one worship idols? Because no one, no idol of Yahweh, no image of Yahweh ever should bow before the image of anything. God does not bow before anything, so His images on earth should not bow before anything. So what does this mean? Mankind is essentially good, and we have five subcategories of what our thinking should be influenced by the image of God, the Imago Dei. The first one is this, that we are little godlings. I couldn't think of a better word for that. You can think of gosling as like goosling or whatever. But whatever it is, okay, there are three different understandings of the image of God, and I think all of them have a play here, a capacity within us, a capacity for a relationship, something that we do to rule and to reign. Whatever the image of God is in us right now, it is a little version of what God is above. So Psalm 858 says this, right after our opening question says, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? He says, You have made them a little lower than the angels. And you have crowned them with glory and honor. You made them human beings, those that are made in your own image, rulers over the works of your hands. And you put everything under their feet. So human beings are little God bearers, little images of God rolling around, going over to all the earth, bearing His image. And that is incredibly significant. Mankind is essentially good because God our Father is essentially good in Himself. Second point, 
man is a special creation. You saw that in Genesis 1.27. But here's some thinking that we can do with that. Man is the pinnacle of creation. At the crescendo of creation, God says, good, 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 fishes, they're good, earth is good, but mankind is very good. For the musicians in here, that is like, man is like the Stradivari, Stradivari, I don't know how to pronounce that, violin, the best of the best. For the car phenomenon, the car people in here, I'm not a car person, that means mankind is like the, the Ford GT of creation. It is a special creation, or whatever car you guys want, I don't care. <laughs> Man is a special creation. Why? Because it alone holds the image of God, unlike anything else in creation does. This goes against evolution. So our culture holds tightly to evolution. And I'm going to be honest, okay? There's not, I don't actually have a lot of problems with evolution in itself. There's a spectrum that you can have, you can believe in evolution, for all the way from ranging from microevolution. Things change a little bit. You see, like, dogs, different breeds of dogs, that's micro. And macro, like, things change over time and species become different species. Whatever you believe, whatever you believe, you have to hold to the special creation of humanity. Because humanity has the image of God. One, Scripture says it. And Jesus Christ proved the Scripture is true by raising from the dead. A historical phenomenon. Two, I don't think that that's that big of a deal. You know, we look at human beings and it looks like there's a categorical difference between us and everything else. Some would argue that that categorical difference between us and everyone else is the image of God at work. Human beings are a special creation. Third point, humans are inherently dignified. If they contain the image of God, if the Father above has said every human being has His image upon Him like a stamp of approval, like you're looking at a statue of Yahweh, at, with every human being, that means that every human being has dignity within themselves that is bestowed upon them by the Father. And the Father is the one that seals it. Nothing else, if nothing else, I should say, the Father of the, above is the one that demands that every human being has dignity. To be human is to have dignity in the eyes of God. Matthew 10.28 says it this way, he says, every hair on your head is numbered. That's how much dignity you have. Every single hair on your head is numbered. Not as impressive with me. We know with the bald jokes. One day you'll join me. <laughs> but, that's still impressive. That the Father above cares that deeply about His children, His images on earth. And this affects our morals. Genesis 9.6 says this, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. And the reasoning is this, For in the image of God has God made mankind. If you deface the image of the king, you have committed treason against that king. 
Wherever the image of the king is, there his reign is. Wherever a human being is, there the Lord is active and is reigning, or so it's supposed to be. We're going to get into that second part later. Here's some implications, okay? This is how this affects real life, okay? This means that the elderly have not lost their value because they cannot provide labor to society. Dignity is not based on what you do. Dignity is not based on how much you can give to society, to anyone else, because God is the one that gives dignity. The phrase is, people are human beings, not human doings. It's silly, but I think it still works. It means that those with mental disabilities have inherent dignity. It does not matter what they can and cannot do in life. The Father above seals their dignity. There are people that disagree with that, by the way, in our culture. Peter Singer is one of them. He says that to be a full human being, to be ideal, to be even a person, that a child and those with mental disabilities, like, they're never actually quite there. You know, you have to like grow into personhood. And we can look at that and we can say, that is evil. That thought is evil. You can't think like that. You can't act like that. You can't take away dignity from anyone because dignity comes from God alone. He is the one that bestows it upon people. Unborn babies have dignity in the eyes of God. If to be human is to have dignity from God above, then that is no matter the circumstances. And I know that sometimes this gets complex. I know. But let me say this. Although rape is horrible, and it is taking away dignity of people, nothing that you can do, that anyone can do, can take away dignity in the eyes of God. Because dignity is not something that human beings give. To be human is to have dignity in the eyes of God. Because God is the one that gives that dignity. It is image. They are image bearers. No wrongs done will ever negate the dignity of human beings. The love that a mother has or does not have can never take away or bestow dignity. The love that a father has or does not have can never take away or bestow dignity. It is God the Father that always gives dignity. This is the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei is universal to humanity. This is your fourth point. To be human, as we have said, is to be dignified in God's eyes. And this includes races, all races at all times. This is why racism essentially fails in the human worldview. Deuteronomy 10.19 and Leviticus 19.34. We're going to go Old Testament on this. We don't even have to go New Testament. Both of them say this. You shall love the foreigner as yourself. You will treat them as citizen. There are so many injunctions in Scripture to love the widow, to love the orphan, 
and to love the foreigner because they are bearers, they are image bearers and children of God. The image of God is universal to humanity. And finally, and this is a fun one, image, the image of God in each instance is an image of the true image. Okay? So when you think of the image of God, naturally the unblemished, the perfect image, the one who is supposed to be exactly what humanity is supposed to be like, before the fall happened, before sin got in the way, most people would think of Adam. And that's not necessarily true. Instead of looking backwards to Eden to think about our humanity, we as Christians look forwards to Christ. Colossians 1.15 says this, He is the image of the invisible God. Same word. He is the image of the invisible God. And then he talks about Christians in this way. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image. Okay? So if we had this inherent dignity, and then Christ came, and we look at Christ, we are transformed into His image. That's what Christianity is all about. It's like Jesus was the perfect image of God before the image even came. This is where theology gets trippy, guys. Okay? Adam, who was first, was formed in the image of Christ, even though Christ came later in history. Think about that. And if you have questions, talk to Drew Moss, because it gets crazy. Adam was formed in the image of Jesus Christ, who is the true image. That's crazy, but it's true. What this means is that for you, for me, for humanity, to truly be alive is found in Christ. Human flourishing can only be found in Jesus because He is the true Imago Dei. There is dignity in every single one of us. Humanity is essentially good. Humanity is essentially good. And there is dignity in every single one of us. So let your opinion about yourself and others be shaped by God's. Okay, that was a lot. That was five facts about a word that you have just heard. So here's what I want to do. I want to take three minutes and I want to ask this question. Based on those five facts coming from Scripture, what part of the Imago Dei is hardest to believe in the modern world? What part of the Imago Dei is hardest to believe in the modern world? Three minutes, go. Okay. So mankind has an inherent dignity, this essential goodness, more than anything in our culture could ever realize or fundamentally believe. That is what the Imago Dei states. 
and it doesn't have anything to do with human beings. It has to do with God above. They are image bearers. But, that's not the full story. When it comes to a Christian worldview of humanity, there is this paradox that goes on with the human being. We are essentially good, but we are also, like the phrase goes, existentially estranged. And what we mean by that is sinful, broken. We have this evil nature within us. And this is what we're going to talk about for the second half. 1 John 3, 4 says this. When we're talking about sinners, it's, it's just nice to say, like, what is, what is sin? That's not really a topic that we talk about a lot. Or we like say, okay, I, I think I know what we're talking about when we say sin. What are you talking about? Let's just, let's just define what we're talking about. 1 John 3, 4 says this. Everyone who sins breaks the law. So there's this law that God gave. And so it's anything that has broken that law that is... Fundamentally, that's what we're talking about when we talk about sin. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Now, the word sin, there's actually a couple words for sin. Uh, One is this idea of iniquity, which is like crookedness. So you see a a plank that's not straight, that's like crooked. It has iniquity. (laughs) Crookedness. You evil plank. Okay? That's iniquity. Transgression is another one. If you make a deal with someone and then you break that deal, that's transgression. So part of that transgression is the deal you made, the people of God made with God. Then they transgressed that covenant. That's what they're talking about when we talk about transgression. But when we're talking about sin, the most basic understanding of the word is kata. And it simply means to miss the mark. So imagine there's a bullseye, okay, and you hit here. You missed it, chief. You hit here, okay? You hit the target, but you needed that to win the game. You still missed the mark. What is the mark that we're talking about theologically? To put it plainly, or I guess to put it negatively, Exodus 20 sets out ten commandments that says, Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not use the name of the Lord in a way that profanes the Lord. Okay? That's a negative way. To put it positively, Jesus talks about this in Mark 12. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself perfectly. And if you don't do that, If you don't love others, that is sin. So here's what the Bible has to say when it comes to this idea of sin. It talks a lot about sin. And it talks rather plainly. And in our culture, I would say bleakly. But I'd also say it's important to speak as the Bible speaks. So here's some ideas that come from Scripture. Okay? Five of them. The first one is inherited brokenness. And that comes from Romans 5, 12-17. This idea is like an inheritance. So Adam, our father, sinned first. Thanks, Dad. And your inheritance is, boom, you're all sinners, you know? That's what the idea that Paul says. You're either under Adam, 
the old Adam, the sinful nature, or you're under Christ. But here's what we mean when we're talking about this. This is classically defined as the idea of original sin. But I don't really want to use that term because when you say the idea, when you say that word, people typically associate that term with original guilt. Okay? They take the idea of, I am born and I have this sinful nature that I have inherited with Adam, and that makes me guilty before God. And here's some reasons why I don't believe that. Okay, I believe in inherited brokenness because that's literally what Romans 5 says, but here's some reasons why. Um, it makes God out to be unjust. It makes him to be kind of a moral monster, a little bit, if I could say that. Um, babies who die would, in fact, go to hell. The crime would be for being human. In fact, humanity would, to be human would be a crime. And that's not the picture that the Bible paints of God. The picture that the Bible paints of God is just and good and gracious. He is just towards sin. He will repay sin for what the sinner does, but not for what the sinner, for what someone hasn't done. That's not what the Bible speaks of. In fact, each time that the Bible speaks on sin, it typically is described as a wage. Something you have done, and here's the just reward. I believe it's Romans 3.23 says, The wages of sin is death. If you have, done, have chosen this, this is the reward. And everyone has chosen that, and so everyone has death as the reward. And then we go on to speak about the gospel that Jesus Christ saves, so we don't just end there. But we're talking about sin right now. Um, just like salvation, you don't get saved by having a spiritual grandmother. You know, you have to choose Jesus Christ. That's how the Christian life works. Um, so also having an evil grandmother doesn't come down upon you. Um, you don't get visited for the judgments that your family has done. In fact, there's actually a verse where God speaks directly towards that. That's Jeremiah 31. He says, in those days, the people will no longer say, okay, so that means they were saying this, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes, so in your mind you can just think uh, warheads, so like sour, um, sour patch kids, okay, something sour. The parents have eaten something sour, and the children's teeth are set on edge, okay? People were saying that. Like, parents did something wrong, and the children, they're visited with God's punishment. Here's what God says about this. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin, because He's just. He doesn't punish those for something they didn't do. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own, or warheads, their own teeth will be set on edge. Then He goes on to describe the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. This means... This idea of Romans 5, 17, 12 through 17, inherited brokenness, is every human being, although they are not naturally sinful, sorry, naturally guilty, we do have an inherited sinful nature. And that does play a part that we're going to talk about in a later one. So, another point, it's actually your last point, forgive me for being a little off here, is this idea of spiritually dead 
spiritually dead. So I've already mentioned several verses that talk about death. The wages of sin is death. Death, if you choose this, you will die. That's actually one of the first things the Bible spoke. He says to Adam, if you eat of the fruit, you will die. They ate of the fruit, they didn't die. What happens? Well, we speak of this as spiritual death. Ephesians 2.1 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. The Bible speaks about humanity outside of Christ as if we were a dead body. So this idea of being a good person, working our way up to God, having salvation by, by works, like it doesn't matter because like a dead body on the floor can't save itself. We can't do anything. We need something outside of us to jumpstart us, to lift us up because sin, ineffectually, it effectually has killed us. We are spiritually dead in sin. Another, our third one down. Sin is a foreign power within you. Sin is a foreign power within you. <clears throat> and there's two things that this means. One, this is actually kind of positive, uh, to be human is actually not synonymous with being sinful. So I know... For us in the Christian circles, we want to live a righteous life, and sometimes it feels like we just mess up a lot, especially for those that were raised. It can be easy to like uh, really weigh down on ourselves, but sinfulness does not equate humanity. Because one, Adam was not sinful, and he was the first human. And two, Jesus Christ was not sinful, and he was the perfect one. If being sinful is equal to being human, then neither Adam nor Jesus are actually human. So it doesn't. See the logic? The second thing this means, and this is negatively, it is described in the Bible as an external power working in us and working against us. Sin is not just something you do, it is also described as something that is done against you, that is in you and working against you. Genesis 6 is the first time this idea comes together. You guys have heard the story of Cain and Abel? Yeah. Okay, Cain kills, if those of you who haven't, Cain, I think this actually might be the first murder recorded in history. So Cain kills his brother, okay, because he, Cain gave... Uh, a bad sacrifice. He gave some crappy farming stuff and then he got jealous. It's kind of a weird story. Go read it. Genesis 6. Okay? But in his jealousy of his brother Abel and he's about to go murder his brother, God shows up and says, Cain, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door and is ready to devour you if you let it. But you can master it. Sin is described as a power that is ready to like jump in and like tear him apart. A power that's working against him. That's not necessarily of him, but working against him. Romans 6 and 7 is another spot where Paul describes it as a slave driver. That's a famous passage where he says, I do not do the things that I want to do, but every time I do something that I don't want to do, there's like this law at work against me, and it's the law of sin. It's like sin comes in and it takes control of my will. 
That is a foreign power working against us. Fourth one down. Sin is universal to humanity. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here uh, because I think it's already clear. Um, Romans 3.23 says, All have fallen short of the glory of God. And so it's not just an inherited nature, but each person everywhere has not achieved that mark. Each person has fallen in the eyes of God. And so it's not about what good we've done because we've all fallen. We all have sin in our lives and we all deserve the wages that we have. And finally, there is this idea of total depravity. Total depravity, which is your second one down. So total depravity, some people... When they hear that word, total depravity, they think of, like, look how totally bad you are. Like, like you're, like, really bad. Like, you suck. Like, you're, like, down there. You're total, total bad person. That's actually not what we talk about when we talk about total depravity. We are speaking more along the lines that every part of us is warped. Every part of us does not think, act, feel, will the way God intended it to be. Kind of like that crooked plank analogy. We're all just, every spot doesn't love like it's intended to. Here's a challenge. Go read Romans 1 with the intention of understanding, looking for our own capacities. Like Paul talks about our Our hearts are darkened. He talks about our minds, our thinking. It doesn't work right. Paul talks about our desires. They're actually like towards wrong things. He talks about us having shameful lusts, like our love. We don't love right. Like every part of us, total depravity has led us astray. What this means is that the human condition, for a fancy Latin word, that comes from the 3rd century A.D., is non, non posse, non picere. You can write that down if you want. It doesn't matter. I'll tell you what it means. Non posse, non picere. It's a fancy word by Augustine to mean it is not possible for you not to sin. Just like if... You guys have been in Walmart, okay? You've been in Walmart, okay? And you guys have had a a like a basket that has a creaky wheel and like you're shopping around and you're like putting stuff in and you're like literally like having to fight this thing like you're walking through the aisle and it's like going astray like every other second and so like you're getting like a bicep workout at the same time okay that sucker can only go straight if you are there course correcting it the idea of total depravity says that we are like that stupid basket, okay? So this idea of not possible not to sin, imagine if there was a basket and you pushed it down the hill with no outside involvement at all, how soon would it go astray? If it's trying to get to the bottom of the hill, it would go one way or another. And if it, some people might go further than others, some people might go longer than others. But if that hill is 70 years long, okay, and some of us can't make it a single day without messing up once, it's not possible not to sin. 
That's the idea of total depravity. That's our nature within us that we've inherited and done ourselves. Here's an application for you that I think is important. Okay? Grace is a basic human need. Grace is a basic human need. Both from you to others, from you to yourself, but most importantly, you from God. Grace is a fundamental, basic human need. To be human is in need of the grace of God that Jesus Christ has wiped away our iniquity, has wiped away our sin and our transgression because we can't do it on our own. Look at those five points. The odds are stacked against us. But that's the gospel and that's why it is so vital. We are completely broken and need something outside of ourselves, a Savior from outside of us, broken humanity. And that is Jesus Christ, the true image of God. Okay, we're going to take a break. There are, and in that break, there are three discussion questions that I want you to spend eight minutes talking about before we wrap up with one final section. Eight minutes, go. Okay, finish up that thought you're on. Okay. So we have spoken on the inherent dignity, the essential goodness of humanity because of God. We have spoken on our current state, our existential estrangement from God. And now I want to spend the last few minutes talking with you about a conversation that some of you actually may never have had. Um, What does the Bible speak about our composition, our constitution as human beings, and no, not uh, Second Amendment stuff. Uh, I'm talking like, what are we? What are we made of? How does it all fit together? Mind, spirit, how, how does it come together? That is what we're talking about right now when we're talking about our idea of our constitutional makeup. I want to begin with uh, the, the verse Genesis 2-7, and it says this, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed, his no- breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And right there you see two ends, two parts of the human being coming together. You see the dust of the ground, and you see the Spirit of God coming together in human beings. Uh, we've used the phrase, I've used the phrase before, as amphibian. We are... Um, a creature of earth, we have a body, and we are a creature of heaven at the same time. We have a spirit. Um, but how do these two relate? How do they go together? What, what's the, are we mainly one or are we mainly other? That's our conversation on this part. And there's a lot of places that this can go in. Um, the idea of ghosts. Like, do you believe in ghosts? The Bible does. At least it speaks on them on certain spots. 
There's plenty of uh, laws against necromancy and against witchcraft to say that the Bible at least doesn't reference ghosts. Um, for homework, 1 Samuel 28 is a fun little instance for you ghost hunters out there where the dead ghost spirit of a prophet is raised to life. So 1 Samuel 28 for the ghost hunters out there. But when we come to the idea of this what soul, like what is soul, what is spirit, and the biblical term is, I've been writing them down before, so I guess I'll just keep writing, nephesh. And that is what we translate as soul, and it literally means, this is so fun, throat. So if you're a, if you're a kidnapper, it says you're a throat napper. If you're a, like, if you killed someone, you're a throat cutter. Okay, that's a little gruesome, but it's nephesh. That's what the Bible talks about when it talks about soul. But the Bible doesn't really speak of soul. When we hear soul, we kind of think of this like immaterial, like ghostly element behind us. Like there's a, there's a spiritual me behind the me here. Like, like this is what we think about the mystical ghostly Alec that you guys can't see. But the Bible, when it talks about soul it references the whole person. Like, this is a soul. You are a soul. A unified person is a soul. That is the concept of nephesh. Here's some verses that help prove this. Deuteronomy 6, a very famous passage. I've actually already quoted it already. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul. Weird. Can you translate it now? With all your throat? And with all your strength, with all your entirety of person, love the Lord your God. Psalm 42, another famous one. As the deer pants for water, so my soul, my entirety of my being, longs for you. It is not this ghostly immaterial self that it's talking about. It's talking about you, the entirety of you, joined together. That is the concept of soul. There is a spiritual element. Okay? We'll talk about that here in a second. But the idea of the soul, the person, is always unified. The idea of a spirit without a body is foreign to the Bible. And to understand this, I think it's helpful to look at a spectrum. Big fan of spectrums around here. Okay? On one side, we have materialism or monism monism as in mono one okay on this side materialism this joining of body and spirit to form the togetherness it actually just like it's kind of hard like how how does it all come together what's the what's the mind's connection to the brain the materialist just says take out the top it's a myth you're just unified, one. Everything that you see is all chemical processes. There's no actual spirit there. There's no immaterial self there. It's just 
you, the physical you. So don't worry about any of the moral stuff, because that doesn't actually matter. This typically is how secular thinking goes. This is naturalistic thinking. And I can definitely tell you, Christians can't think that way, because God is spirit. If you believe in God, if you're a Christian, you kind of have to believe in God. And God is spirit. And the, I, the biblical worldview is, like, you also are spiritual. So, we can't go too far that way. And on the other end of the spectrum is called dualism. And this is most famous with a guy named Rene Descartes. Some of you guys may know him, some of you guys may not. Um, his big phrase is, I think, therefore I am, or I doubt, therefore I am. But the big idea of him is like, like I, my mental processes, like that is what proves my existence. It's philosophy, forgive them, okay? But the idea of dualism is like there's, there's more separation there than you think, okay? And the spiritual always wins out over the physical. That is also not a biblical worldview. The further you go down this side, um, some popular things that you might recognize. And you guys seen uh, the, the first movie of Scooby-Doo? Okay, Monster Island? Okay, with those ghosts, those like little demon guys. Scary, traumatized me as a child. There's a scene in there where they're like, they pop out of their bodies and they swap souls, you know. That's actually dualistic thinking. That the spirit and the body can just kind of like switch around, you know. Pull the old switcheroo, Scooby-Doo, you know. Um, in a more serious element, this is actually trans ideology. The idea of the person, the real person, is disconnected from the physical being. Like, whatever I am, my spirit, my mind, me, is not connected, is not as connected to my physical person. And I, the, the spiritual, mental person, I get to define what the physical is. Whichever one, dualistic, the Bible speaks of you as a unified whole. The fall messes with us and our emotions, but we are a created whole. The third option, I believe, on your paper, that I believe is the best way of moving forward, is a phrase called holistic dualist. Okay? Here's what that means. Dualist, because you can't be materialist, you can't just say there's one side of the picture. you got to believe in spirit somehow. God is spirit. But holistic, the Bible always speaks of the soul as together. For example, okay, you were created, fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in your mother's womb, okay, from the very beginning. When you die, you will briefly be separated and with the Lord, and then, for the rest of eternity, you will be in a body. Okay? It seems that the entirety of the picture of humanity is in a body. 
The spirit and the body are seen together. That is the biblical worldview. It actually calls Paul in 2 Corinthians, I'm going to read it here in a second, speaks of the spirit without the the body as naked, without a home. Like, that's not the way humanity was supposed to be. Like, this is right together. This is whole. Let's read it. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. If you want to turn there, you can. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. I'm going to start reading. For we know that if the earthly tent, the body, we live in is destroyed by death, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands, a new heavenly body. Meanwhile, we groan, longing instead to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. When we are in flesh, when we are together, when we are whole, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, the body, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, <coughs> so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. couple thoughts. Body now, body then. Body and spirit always go together. The spirit by itself is called naked, but the body is described as its home. Your body and spirit are a unit in the Old Testament and in the New. Holistic dualism. One picture. There's complexity here. I'm not telling you exactly what the right way is, but it's holistic. Okay? So an example from modern life uh, that I, I picked up that I like. Uh, salt, okay, sodium chloride, that's two different elements that come together, intimately connected in an ionic bond. It is possible to separate the two, but chlorine has poisonous elements to it that are not good for human flourishing. Chlorine and sodium are meant to be together. Salt comes together, and Jesus says, be salt and light. Amen. Let's keep moving. So what does this mean? It means that the body is part of the personal of your personal identity, both now and forever. You cannot say that I and my body are out of alignment. It is a package deal. Your body is your home. That is a Christian worldview. Your body is spiritual. That's another application. You can't think of it as something like, this is the real me, and this is like the false lower me, and the body doesn't matter. No, they are together. The body is spiritual. So stop thinking of the spirit as something higher, more personal within yourself. A spiritual person is someone who follows the spirit of God. It's not someone that goes off into the woods and meditates, who just prays a lot, that can... I don't know whatever you consider a spiritual person. A spiritual person is someone who with their body and their spirit follows the Spirit of God, orients every part of themselves towards the kingdom of God, orients their soul, their entire being towards the kingdom of God. That means that the spiritual disciplines like prayer, even fasting, the idea of depriving your body 
are meant to orient your whole self, to realign your desires, your hungers, towards something higher. Not your own spirit, the Spirit of God. Sometimes, this is Alec, this is Alec's personal advice. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is to take care of your body because the body is spiritual. If you are cranky because you're sleep deprived in college, the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Amen? Because the body and spirit are one. It also means that no part of you is evil. And no part of you is more spiritual than any other. That means that sexuality, that means that these things that God has given you, like no part of you, no part of your body is evil. It's all spiritual. You have to honor God with it, but you can't say it's less than because it's not the higher self. You and your body are one. It also means that your physical condition must be taken into account when it comes to spiritual healthiness. You can't be emotionally immature and treat your body like trash and call yourself a spiritual person. Discipleship that we talk about here is a pyramid where the personal and the physical go hand in hand with the spiritual because the spiritual goes hand in hand with the physical. That's a biblical worldview. And finally... And I'm actually very passionate about this, and I'd love to have more conversations about it. Modern psychological medicine can be a spiritual option. I know there's a stigma in Christian circles where we don't like, we don't seek out this. If we face depression, we face uh, bipolar disorder, we face um, things like schizophrenia, um, we want to do things like pray. Um, Prayer is good. But if the body is a unit, if the mind and the spirit and the, and the brain go together, then you can pray to the Lord Jesus Christ and you can seek medical attention. And that is a spiritual option. You are not dishonoring God. You are living a wise spiritual life in your spiritual body. And I hope you take that to heart. So what is mankind, to conclude? It is the Imago Dei. It is fallen. It is a complex system of holism and dualist, holist, holistic dualism. Pascal puts it this way, and I love this quote. He says, Man is a king on a crumbling throne, possessing great glory and great degradation. We have great glory great dignity, and we have a great fall at the same time. But also in the words of Psalm 8 that we began with, says, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made us lower than the angels, and yet you have crowned us with glory and honor. And then the psalmist goes on to say, Because of that, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Because we're his image bearers. That's all we got tonight. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this talk about us, that you have made us in your image, that we are fallen, but that you still seek us in our fallen state, and that we need grace. 
God, I pray that this conversation about body and spirit, that it is helpful, that we are to seek you with all of ourselves, um, that our body is spiritual, and that the kingdom of God is coming here, and it is coming in this physical place. Um, God, I'm passionate about this stuff, and I pray that these conversations, um, that they stick and that you would help all of us believe in a biblical worldview because we believe in you, Jesus. I pray all of this in your name. Amen.